Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. That's Barbara Dane and the Chamber Brothers playing It Isn't Nice, their version of the popular politically charged gospel and civil rights song. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, we have another excellent interview today for you with author, historian, award-winning Pulitzer Prize finalist writer Michael Gora. Michael Gora will be presenting at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates program via Zoom September 27th, and details and more information can be found at our website, and we will be talking about another author today, William Faulkner. He was an uncompromising modernist, a great chronicler of the American South, and an inspiration, as well as an immovable obstacle. For the generations of writers who followed, William Faulkner stands as one of the greatest and one of the most problematic figures in American literature. William Faulkner was Mississippi-born, a white man of his time and place who did not always rise above it. Yet his work also provides a burning account of the intersection of race, region, and remembrance. We're going to be doing a probing analysis of William Faulkner and the past that he writes so much about, which was so difficult for him to put behind him and us. William Faulkner set almost all his work in what he called an apocryphal territory, the imaginary Yakna Patafa County in northern Mississippi. William Faulkner carried characters and plot lines over from one book to another, as if the land itself were sprouting a story in which everything and everyone was connected. Michael Gore will be reading to us from his new book on William Faulkner, The Saddest Words, so stick around for this enlightening historical interview with Michael Gora. Michael Gora, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you, too. I think this will be just a fascinating subject. We are going to be talking, of course, about Reading Faulkner, Chronicler of the American South, a uh, an evening course from Smithsonian Associates coming up here Monday, September 27th. I just think this will this will be so interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and in particular how you'll use Zoom to engage our audience. We're we're all going to be, you know, using Zoom then and we all have lately uh, quite a bit. We we all know it too well. Um <laughs> so this is the third of uh, the the third talk I've given in, in this series and each of them is focused on a particular novel of Faulkner's. The uh the talk I gave in July was on The Sound of the Fury. Um, the one in uh, in August was on Light in August, and this last one, Light in August, obviously for August, and this last one is uh, is going to be on Absalom, Absalom, which, um, to my mind and in the mind of many, is, is Faulkner's greatest novel. It, it uh, appeared in 1936, and it's really the novel in which he faces most squarely the uh, the legacy of the slave society in which he grew up, and and the way that that society has has lingered on um into the present its time is split between between the 1860s and 1910 when a a young man at Harvard Quentin Compson who's also the uh, the main character in the sound of the fury tells a story about the south to to his canadian roommate he he quentin has been people have been asking quentin for months uh as he goes around his his life at at, at Harvard, where he's quite an exotic figure to tell about the South, to tell what it's like there, how people live there, why they live there, and even why do they live at all. And so he, so he, he, the story he tells is of the, is of the uh, conquering of the land um, by 
a white slave owner named Thomas Sutpen who imports slaves from the Caribbean uh, in the 1830s, having, having essentially cheated the Native Americans out of the land, and then builds a great plantation. And as the war develops, watches it come to smash. Um, so I'll be talking about that novel. It's, it's, uh, it's historically complex and it, it's sense of the way Southern history works and the way in which uh, moments in the past seem to recur to never quite be done with. Uh, but it's also very complex in terms of its narrative structure because it's, it's told by several narrators, narrators, each of whom tells the same story and then it's retold and retold that each time it gets a little bigger and a little grander. Um, and, uh, and then finally it, it, it ends in a great conflagration. So how I use zoom is my, my use of zoom is, is really pretty elementary. Um, uh, you know, in, in, when I teach in, in a physical classroom, I always read a lot of passages aloud and my students will have their books in front of them. Uh, I don't know if I can count on that here, but uh, and people would have different editions in any case. So, so what I do with Zoom is is I put I put the quotations up on up on the screen, so the the substantial quotations, so people have that language right in front of them. I also always read the quotations aloud because uh, when 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 you when you read a quotation, particularly in complicated prose like Faulkner's, um, reading it aloud lets your mind lets it sink into your mind in a way that that just reading to yourself doesn't, doesn't always. Um, I also, when I'm writing, I, I type out all those, all those long passages uh, in my first draft because uh, I, I get a, something more like a feel for how the prose works from having made my fingers go through it. So there'll, there'll be quotations up on the screen. I'll probably put up a few of the different uh, dust jackets and covers that the novel has had over time. Uh, probably a picture of Faulkner himself. Uh, haven't decided whether I'm going to use any any shots of ruined plantations yet. I haven't done that in the past, and I'm probably I probably won't though 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 it, though it is tempting. Um, so that's that that's how I use Zoom. Um, and uh, otherwise, it's just it's just me talking. And uh, and then then we we also use Zoom uh, of course at the end of the, the session. Uh, there's a very lively um, chat. Uh, goes on about 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 these talks and the the questions for the Q and A get fed get fed to me through Zoom. Well, thank you for that. Your latest book focuses on some of Faulkner's greatest novels, um, Absalom, Absalom, and and others. And, and and the title is interesting. It's the saddest words. William Faulkner's Civil War. Right. Tell us what you mean by the saddest words. Sure. Um, the title comes out of the sound of the fury. Um, and, uh, I have to say that although I was always intending to write about the particular words, I mean that as a title for the book, it came, it came to me rather late. Um, so the, the, the saddest words, they're, they're very simple words. One of them is was, and one of them is again. And the way it comes up in the novel is, is, uh, Quentin Compson figures in that novel as well as in Amsalom, Amsalom. And, and, uh, before he goes up to Harvard, he's having a, a, a talk with his father in, in Mississippi, and uh, they're talking about a particularly traumatic, difficult issue in their own family life, their own family history. Um, and Mr. Compson says, "Was the sad, and I'm going to I'm going to botch the quotation probably. I don't have it in front of me. Was the saddest word of all." 
it's not even is until it was. And he says was is for him a sad word because when something is was, when something was, it means it can't be changed. It's in the past. It's, it's fixed. It's, it's, it's unchangeable. You can't alter it. You have to live with it, with something that, that is was. You know, is, if something is, it's, it's ongoing. It still has the possibility of change. Um, and so Quentin thinks that, yeah, that, that is a pretty sad word. But when he's, when he's at, at Harvard, um, another word comes to him. And he thinks, that no, no, was isn't the saddest word. The saddest word is again. Again, because something, you know, it's, it points to a, a, an event that recurs something happening over and over again. And, and I think Faulkner, Quentin, certainly, uh, and in, in family history and the sound of the fury. And then in terms of Southern history and Absalom, Absalom, Quentin is caught between was and again, there's a sense of, of a past that is unchangeable. And that's the, the slave past for, those white characters, it's also the Civil War, um, uh, something that can't be altered for better or worse or in any way. It's just a, a fact that they have to live with, and yet somehow they can't because it seems as if it's still going on for them. Things are recurring. They they never quite get over their pasts. They never really come to grips with their pasts. Um, uh, they, they, they They struggle with it. Uh, they struggle with that past, and, and yet, and yet the, it seems always to be there and never quite over with. And in another novel, um, Requiem for a Nun, Faulkner has a character say, um, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Um, you know, that, that nothing is ever fully done with. And, you know, in many ways, that's that, that um, saying that those lines, they invite a Freudian reading in terms of, of concepts of trauma, where you, you keep on revisiting the site or the memory of something painful. And I, I think that's, that's what's going on in Faulkner. Um, uh, it's the, the memory of having been a beneficiary of a slave society. It's also for Faulkner, who was a white man of the Jim Crow South and didn't didn't always rise above it. Um, also, the memory of of not having that society anymore either, and he's he's caught between the between a sense of nostalgia and a sense of shame, uh, and so are many of his characters. And so these were really some of the inner forces as well as some of the outer forces that that shaped his referencing of the Civil War and his character. Exactly. Exactly. The Civil War for him is something that is is always there. It's it's a shaping force in his characters' lives. It's I think a shaping force in his fiction too, in the way that that he's always giving us events that recur. Um, you know, whether whether it's a character thinking about an event and then a while later thinking about it and not being able to get past it, or events that show up in three or four of his novels, the same event because he did link all his major works. They're all set in the same, in the same social world, in the same small Mississippi town with characters who, who bleed over from one book to another. Uh, it's all interlinked, and, and none of it is, is, is ever really past. 
Um, yeah, and, and the, the the paradox there is that is that he never he very rarely writes about the war directly. There are uh, no big battle scenes. There are uh, a couple of uh, uh, there's no red badge of courage in in uh, in uh, Faulkner. Uh, no no big battle scene. There are skirmishes um, that take just a couple of pages, but the war is always alluded to. It's always a, a determining thing in 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 his characters' lives. And so this determining thing in, in his characters' lives, we can understand the Civil War. How, how, how can we understand Faulkner in relation to the war? Right. Well, you know, Faulkner, um, the first thing is, of course, Faulkner is, he is from Mississippi. He's from Mississippi. He was born in 1897. His great grandfather had been a Confederate colonel. Um, First, an, an infantry officer who fought at, at the first Battle of Bull Run, and then later the leader of, uh, of a partisan uh, troop of cavalry raiders in, in Mississippi. Um, uh, he grew up on stories of the war um, and on stories and on the mythology of the lost cause. He went to school in uh, Mississippi where the, the textbooks were by law. Um, required to provide a pro-Confederate uh, version of of the American past. Um, they skimmed over the uh, details of of lynching, of the terror that was visited on black people in the South after the Civil War, um, and talked about Reconstruction only as this evil thing that had been been done to them by the Yankees. Um, that's what Faulkner grew up with. Uh, but he was also a self-critical reader, a self-critical person. Um, he believed, as he put it in, uh, in, uh, in Requiem for a Nun, that secession had been a folly. Um, it had, it had, uh, he, he, he viewed the South as having, as he put it, gone over a precipice that they thought was an apotheosis. Um, and and he who also uh, recognized in a way that very few uh, white Southerners were willing to recognize in the 1920s and 30s and 40s that slavery, one of the things that slavery had rested on was the kind of systemic sexual exploitation of black women. Faulkner knew that. Uh, Margaret Mitchell doesn't know that. Uh, and Gone with the Wind? Uh, no, the cheat's not going to go near that. Faulkner knows that. Um, so, 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 you know, he's, so he, he has this, he's grown up in, he's, he's grown up in a world where, where, you know, he couldn't get away from, from the war. There were, there were still a lot of, a lot of Confederate veterans, uh, in his town when he was a boy, he got used to seeing, seeing people with empty sleeves, but also the, the social landscape, uh, which was, um, you know, a, a caste society, as Isabel Wilkerson has put it, uh, a very impoverished world um, that had been made by the war. We are with Michael Gora. Michael Gora will be speaking at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here September 27th. We're going to put links up to where you will be able to find more information about Michael Gora and his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. I wonder, Michael Gora, if we can talk a little bit about Faulkner today and 
we are still feeling the effects of racism. The words again and was strike me too because they, they are something painful. How can Faulkner be appreciated today? Right. Well, th- th- it's, this is a very complicated question. Um, there, is, there is no doubt that in his daily life, uh, as I said, Faulkner was a man of the Jim Crow South, a white man of the Jim Crow South. He didn't know his rise above it. Um, he, you know, in, in many ways, in terms of daily social life, he was not that different from his neighbors. Um, uh, you know, you could, in daily social life, I think, yes, probably was, uh, in many ways, a racist. However, he also knew that. He knew that, and as Toni Morrison has written, he didn't look away. He just takes, she takes the words of Dixie and, and bends them to fit Faulkner. He didn't look away. He faced what his society had done. He knew how it had treated black people. He knew, um, he knew its sins. He had a sense of slavery as a sin that had been visited on the land, uh, for which some atonement was going to need to be done for a very long time. I think in that, there's a, there are moments in Faulkner that remind me of, of Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, how, what we make of him now, um, you know, I think, I think, I think in, in that, that in our moment now of reckoning with our past, of trying to see the ways in which, in which, um, despite all the ways that this country has changed in the last 50 or 60 years, there are a lot of ways in which it hasn't and still needs to, um, Faulkner writing out of a world that was resisting that change with every ounce of its being. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure he, he, he helps, except he helps us understand. He helps us understand. Another thing, you know, and I've, I've said that in many ways, in many ways he was, uh, he certainly had racist impulses. He said some awful things in, the 1950s, um, often when he when he was drunk, uh, about wanting to resist integration, he also was in many ways in favor of it. He said, he said at one point, and and uh, he he had a, he had a very tart sense of humor. He said that he didn't see any point in Mississippi in paying for two separate school systems, neither of which were good enough for anybody. Uh, you know, one one school system. It was going to take a while, but 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 one school system. He also he also worked in in his town in Oxford to to do what he could to resist the growth of of the citizens councils, which were also known as the Uptown Clan, um, that that got going after Brown v. Board of Education. Um, he insisted that the war memorial in Oxford for World War II um, also carry the names of of black servicemen from that town, um, which not a lot of other white people in town were ready to were, were ready to go there. Um, so you know, so he's 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 a mixed, complicated figure, and in that too, I think he's a valuable one for us to look at. Um, that that he he he's none of us are pure. Faulkner carried these characters and plot lines from one book 
to another. And you say that Faulkner's works contain some of the richest gallery of characters in all of American literature. Right. I wonder if you'd pick one of the characters. You mentioned Quentin, but maybe right. pick one of the characters uh, from uh, Yakna Patafa. Yakna Patafa. Yeah, it's a it's a hard it's word, a hard in, word. In, in my in my classes at, at in my classes at Smith College. I I start my Faulkner class by making students say uh, Yakna Patafa. Yakna Patafa. It's a great word. Right. What, and so tell us what the it word, is. A great word. Yeah, what does it mean? The word the word is it comes out of it's it's uh, it's comes out of Choctaw uh, and Choctaws were the the Native Americans in in Faulkner's part of Mississippi or the or the, the dominant group anyway um, one of what were called the five civilized tribes um, who were set on the Trail of Tears uh, under Andrew Jackson um, it means uh, there 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 are different meanings um, to it. Uh, uh, or different Faulkner's different derivations have been cited for. The first thing is there, there is a, a Yachny River in um, in Lafayette County, Mississippi, where, where, where which is Faulkner's home county. Um, Yachny, ya, the Yachny River. Um, the first couple of syllables of that word, um, although at some point it had been called the Yachna Patafa. Um, so it means that one meaning given for it is is uh, basically just a slow moving river through, <laughs> through you know still water, not as sluggish. Another is uh, indicating a, a, a land the land that has been gashed open and wounded, and both those things in a way fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but so a, a character a character mm-hmm. I've been thinking about a lot mm-hmm. um, is a man named Joe Christmas in Light in August. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when I, when I did a, a class, a lecture on that for the Smithsonian Associates last month, I got, I got a comment from, from, uh, one of the people in the class saying, ah, you know, this is just an awful person. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be reading about him. And in many ways that's true. That's true. Uh, Joe Christmas is, is a bootlegger. Uh, he's a murderer. Um, maybe he's a twice a murderer. Um, he is dangerous. Um, he's, uh, a man who has grown up first in an orphanage and then on the farm of a, of a sort of rigidly Presbyterian minister, uh, Presbyterian farmer who beats him. Um, he also though grows up believing that he has some black ancestry he grows up in the white world. It's a white orphanage. It's a white farmer, but he believes that he has some black ancestry. And where this belief comes from, whether it's anything more than the children teasing him uh, at the orphanage, he doesn't know. But it's what he's built his life on: this belief that he is neither fully black nor neither fully white. And when he gets angry, he will. He'll tell he'll he will tell a white prostitute that he's part black in order to watch her reaction. Uh, he will tell black people who assume he also is black that he's white in order to watch their reaction, in order to provoke a fight. Um, he you know he he lives in a world where that has no space for people who are neither, uh, who are in between, and part of him part of him. Uh, wants to insist on his right to be in between and part of him also uh wishes that he could be simply one thing or another he's a terribly terribly complicated character he's he's um 
you don't like being in his company, but you but but you never forget him. Um, and uh, and then there are moments when when he has the kind of odd stillness and quiet, and and you you see that there there is somebody there who, under different circumstances, uh, would have would have had a, a more successful life, more interesting life. Maybe not more interesting, but more contented life. The book, uh, The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War, is, is excellent. And we're going to ask you in just a minute to, to read from it, if, if you would. I, I have one, one question about what you learned about Faulkner after using these Civil War primary resources and Faulkner's own text and criticism. Sure. Right. Well, well, a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. I, mean, I learned a lot of things. Uh, I learned more about, uh, from doing the secondary reading, more about cotton cultivation than I had ever dreamed, <laughs> and about, about the economic structures of farming. Um, I also learned that there were in Mississippi in the 1930s an awful lot of really good works of sociology uh, written, often by... by, by Northern sociologists who came to Mississippi to do field work. There's, there, there's a classic book um, by a man named John Dollard called Class and Character, Cast and, well, I'm going to botch the title, uh, Class and Cast, I think, in, in a Southern town, or maybe it's Race and Class in a Southern town. Another by a woman named Horton's Powdermaker. These were two sociologists who went down from, from the North to study it. And then a book written by a black and white team of sociologists about the town of Natchez called Deep South. Um, these are these are just uh, extraordinary records of uh, of um, life in in that Jim Crow world, and and uh, they they deserve to be better known. That they were some of the most interesting reading I did, and of course they're exactly contemporary with Faulkner's with Faulkner's greatest work. Um, I think probably the thing I. I I don't know if I was most surprised by it, but it was really interesting and gratifying to learn is just just how good a historian Faulkner was. Um, he claimed never to do any research. Um, he must have done a lot of reading around that he might not have called research. But just how good a historian he was and, and how how many of the, the observations he makes about his society hold up in the light of our historical knowledge now i'll give you i'll give you one example um in the unvanquished which is a set of stories that he wrote about about the war he has a, there's an extraordinary uh sequence in which um in which the the, the white narrator encounters groups of newly freed uh slaves and slave people walking across the Mississippi landscape in groups. They're going at night, um, partly to hide and partly to avoid the heat of the sun. And what they're doing is they're trying to find where the Union Army is um, because the Union Army is, is for them a, a, a source of safety, at least they, at least they believe. Um, you know, and this, was the, this, of course, was, was a major feature of, of um, the Southern landscape in 1863, 4, and 5. Uh, it was not a major feature of the historiography of the Civil War that Faulkner would have grown up reading, which concentrated on battles and and uh, 
and all and all that, not on, on kind of the social history of the war, especially not in the social history of people leaving slavery. Nowadays, though, that's that's one of the major things that historians are looking at. Um, the newly freed slaves were were, were called were called contrabands, and there's a, there's a complicated history as to as to why they were called that. Um, but but a lot of the social a lot of the histories of the war, important histories of the war that have come out in the last fifteen years, have given uh, looked at the looked at those movements of people walking across the landscape in, in great detail. And Faulkner catches that in a way that um, that very few white historians in his time uh, were at all interested in doing. Now, one person who was interested in doing it uh, was, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, whose book um, uh, Black Reconstruction came out essentially at the same time as Absalom Absalom. Um, they they had a sort of contentious uh, exchange of telegrams in, in the 1950s. Du Bois wanted Faulkner to debate integration with him, and, and Faulkner wouldn't. And I, I think, honestly, Du Bois would have eaten Faulkner alive at that point. Uh, but but Faulkner, but they they see they saw a lot of the same phenomena. Well, the book is excellent. The saddest words: William Faulkner's Civil War. I enjoyed it. I just will encourage our audience to check it out. Thank of you course, so much. thank you so much, Michael Gora. And I wonder if we can ask you to read a brief passage from the saddest. Sure, I'm gonna. I'm actually going to read a passage aloud that I've never read aloud before, mm-hmm. uh, from a, a very different kind of chapter. It's a. Uh, it's a chapter about um, the world of, it's a chapter called The New South, A New South, about the world of poor whites um, in the South. Um, and it's a chapter where I had to put, put a lot of social history together and move around from a lot of different novels, between a lot of different novels. So, so it's, it was a complicated bit of writing, and, uh, and I'm, I'm fond of it. Uh, but this is the passage I'm going to read is about the, the settlement of one corner of Mississippi and then the shift from uh, the slave society to the sharecroppers world after the Civil War. Their names were Armstead and Tall and Quick, Winterbottom, McCarran and Bundren, families that rolled into the country from the Northeast, coming down slowly from the Tennessee mountains and beyond. They got a little further inland and a little further south with each decade, moving in wagons and on foot and holding prayer books that most of them could not read. They might start a farm and leave it, and then start another where the land was a little easier. They came to Mississippi with no slaves and not much more property than they could carry. And in the old South, they lived in the margins of the big plantations. Such people could be found all over the region. The ones I've named came to a stop about 20 miles away from Jefferson, down to the county's southeast corner. They got some land and built small houses, which they left unpainted, dog trot cabins with another box of a room added every few years as needed. They grew a bit of cotton and a little corn. They made whiskey and looked after their own. Probably most of them fought for the Confederacy, though few went so far as Pappy McCallum in Faulkner's novel Flags in the Dust, who named his seven sons after Confederate commanders. And probably, too, some of them tried to sit it out, reluctant to fight in what they believed was a rich man's war. And there was a rich man in that neighborhood. He was called Louis Grenier, But by 1890, when Faulkner's The Hamlet opens, he was remembered only as the Frenchman, though you could still find his name written in a fading hand in the land records in the county courthouse. At the bend itself, he was barely even a memory, 
and his enormous house had begun to fall back into the cane and cypress jungle from which it emerged. Grenier laid out stables and slave quarters. He put in brick terraces and gardens and made his people straighten the Yoknapatawpha River to keep it from flooding his cotton. He built a monument to his own magnificence. Then he vanished into the war, and the cultural sway that such men once held seemed to vanish with him, leaving behind only a touch of legend in the land itself, fields and acres that were then parceled out into, quote, small, shiftless mortgage farms mortgaged, most of them, not to a Jefferson bank, but to another man in the neighborhood. He was rich too, a different kind of rich, and his name was Will Varner. And as, as I was reading that, I, 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 you know, I recognized again that one of the things I do in this book is I, is I describe Faulkner's uh, landscape and his characters as I often describe them as if they're real people. Um, as if this is a real place that I'm, I'm talking about. Of course, it's, it's composite of the many places and many towns and landscapes Faulkner knew himself, but uh, I've tried to make it as vivid as, as possible for the reader by, by letting us pretend that it's real. Yes, it was, it was very real as you were reading that, and uh, the book is wonderful. The book, again, is The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War by Michael Gore. Michael Gore has been our guest today. Michael Gore will be at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here September 27th. We will have links to where you can find out information about Michael Gore's presentation. I recommend the book, and I recommend that you attend Michael Gore's presentation at Smithsonian. It's just going to be fantastic words again. Thank you, sir. We appreciate your time and appreciate all the work. Thank you, Paul. My thanks to Michael Gore for his time, expertise, and thoughtful preparation in joining me today. My thanks, of course, to you our wonderful KSCW audience. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And remember to talk about better, the Not Old Better show on KSCW. Thanks, everybody. Oh, my.
waste to do.